Welcome, I am Leanne Krawchuk. And I'm Robin Long. And together, we are your hosts for the Get the Dirt in Mining, a podcast series brought to you by the Denton's Mining Group. This podcast series covers various topics in the mining sector and aims to provide you with small segments that you can listen to on the go. You can find our episodes at www.dentons.com on our podcast page. There, you can access our episodes as well as an episode description for each topic and information on our speakers. And now, over to our podcast topic and speakers. In today's episode, I'm here with Alex McWilliam, who will be discussing how to prepare for the transition of ESG from soft law to hard law. Alex is our Canadian lead for Denton's Global Environment and Natural Resources Group and the Climate Change Strategies Practice Group. Alex is widely regarded as one of the leading environmental law practitioners in Alberta, and he advises clients in respect of all matters of environmental law, including the management and minimization of liability arising from environmental risks, compliance, environmental management systems, and other risk management tools. Welcome, Alex. Thanks very much, Robin. Uh, As most of you are no doubt aware, ESG issues are now at the forefront of corporate thinking uh, as a source of both risk and opportunity. And several factors are driving this change, including stakeholder activism, consumer choice, ESG-related litigation, and new legislation on ESG-related issues, much of which has extraterritorial reach. Stakeholders, including shareholders, employees, contractors, consumers, communities, and supply chains are effectively influencing corporate behavior. As I'm sure you all know, and as Robin alluded to in his opening comments, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Criteria. These criteria are a framework used to assess the impact of the sustainability and ethical practices of a company on its financial performance and its general operations. Increasingly, ESG data is used to analyze corporate risks and behavior that can influence and even determine the long-term performance of companies. This type of risk analysis has become very important to investors in all sectors of the economy, but it is particularly germane in sectors where environmental and social issues have assumed greater significance and notoriety, such as in the extractive industries, petroleum and mining. Now, it's very important to appreciate that while the acronym ESG is of relatively recent vintage, many of the concepts included in the criteria have been applied to the mining sector for decades. Environmental impact assessments have been required in many countries for a long time, and such regulatory reviews often include detailed requirements to describe the expected environmental risks and the mitigation strategies to deal with those risks, as well as the socioeconomic costs and benefits expected from a particular project. Those issues were considered as part of the legal landscape within which a company and its projects were expected to operate. They were assessed by regulators and by governments. Companies had to meet these requirements in order to get their projects approved and had to continue to meet applicable requirements in order to be compliant and to operate without any enforcement issues. But what's changed in recent years is the increased focus that's placed on environmental and social issues 
by the investment community, and in particular, by large institutional investors with access to literally trillions of dollars of capital. So in addition to having to address environmental and social issues to the satisfaction of government regulators, something that the mining industries had to do for decades, companies are now being asked to demonstrate acceptable performance in these and in other areas in order to access the capital needed to fund their projects. It's not just the borrowers and the issuers who are being asked for their ESG report cards. Banks, pension funds, other investment vehicles are being pressured by their shareholders, their members and their investors, and by NGOs to direct investments to companies viewed as having positive environmental and societal impacts and to disinvest from industries and jurisdictions perceived to have negative impacts. The last few years have seen a significant increase in sustainability reporting regulations around the world. There's a publication with the great title of Carrots and Sticks. And what it does is it aggregates in a database the mandatory and voluntary requirements and instruments that either require or encourage organizations to report sustainability related information. And the authors of Carrots and Sticks have been tracking developments in this area for 15 years, and they just published the fifth edition of their report in 2020. Uh, that uh, edition identified over 600 reporting provisions, they call them, and they broke them down by region. So 73 of them were in Africa and the Middle East, 174 were in Asia Pacific, 245 from Europe, 37 from North America and 85 from South America. And the reporting provisions ranged from voluntary codes to mandatory reporting requirements. And the various types of instruments that are included in ESG reporting frameworks range from what I call soft laws to actual legislative requirements, AKA hard laws. Uh, it's important for companies to track the development of the former as it quite often leads to the latter. Soft laws are things like statements of principles agreed to by nations, uh, information collected on corporate performance by NGOs and presented to governments, codes, practices developed by industry sectors and the sort. Uh, and these can lead and have led to to voluntary reporting and disclosure practices. Self-governing bodies such as industry associations uh, may eventually require their members to agree to be bound by these reporting practices. And financial market regulators may then become more active and make reporting and disclosure a requirement for companies seeking to raise capital in the markets that they regulate. And ultimately, governments may enact legislation making reporting and disclosure mandatory and enforcing criminal sanctions for non-compliance against companies and their officers and directors. The treatment of greenhouse gas emissions as a contributor to global warming and climate change provides a good example of how this issue has moved through the spectrum of provisions that I just described. The 1992 UN Rio Earth Summit produced a broad agenda focused on sustainable development that led to the signing of the Kyoto Protocol in 1997. The protocol was a non-binding statement of intent signed by almost 200 countries 
but was not ratified until 2005. And in the meantime, some companies started to track their own GHG emissions and look at ways to offset those emissions. Uh, Suncor is a very good example of, of just such a company. Governments in some jurisdictions decided to encourage emitters of greenhouse gas to voluntarily report their emissions to government agencies set up to aggregate and track this data on an industry, region, and national basis. Lenders took up the issue and frameworks like the Carbon Disclosure Project developed. Financial regulators jumped in, resulting in the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosure, the TCFD framework. Uh, eventually, GHG emissions reporting became mandated by law and requirements to reduce these emissions were required in certain jurisdictions. So this progression that I've just described is now being seen in other areas that fall under the ESG rubric. So it's important for companies to recognize the development of the soft laws and prepare for the possibility that they could ultimately lead to hard laws. I recommend that companies become familiar with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, as they form the basis for many of the topics that are covered in existing and developing ESG reporting frameworks. Uh, the UN Environment Program on Sustainability Reporting in the Mining Industry published a report in September 2020 uh, in which it found a growing demand for more detailed disclosures at the mine site level and the need for increased government involvement and guidance, such as focusing on the national uh, or the SGG, SDG priorities on a national basis. Uh, this can inform the context of sustainability disclosures and make them more meaningful to stakeholders. And among the key findings of this recent UN report was that the management of environmental and social aspects and sustainability reporting of mining companies is not currently meeting the expectation of interested stakeholders, notably communities affected by mining operations and, in, and investors. Sector-specific reporting provisions are an important part of the overall picture. Uh, and the two reporting standards that have become the most prominent and most commonly used are the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, also known as SASB, and the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI. Both these organizations have developed documents that are specific to the mining sector. SASB has its Metals and Mining Sustainability Accounting Standard covering 11 topics ranging from GHD emissions to business ethics and transparency some of which allow for quantitative measurement, while others that are not capable of measurement are dealt with by discussion and analysis. GRI standards are broken down by topic, such as procurement practices, energy use, and anti-corruption, but the organization also uses what it calls sector disclosures to focus on particular industries. And the mining and metal sector disclosures document is intended to cover key aspects of sustainability performance that are meaningful and relevant to the sector and they're not sufficiently covered by the guidelines and standards of more general application. And while SASB and GRI appear to be emerging as the more commonly applied ESG reporting frameworks, there's a plethora of other standards, principles, guidelines, questionnaires, and performance indicators. And this makes it difficult for companies, investors, and other stakeholders to make meaningful assessments and comparisons. Another important issue is the fact that Reporting frameworks focus on aggregate corporate performance and may not provide sufficient detail to provide a reliable basis for assessing individual projects or business units. 
and I'll talk at the end of my remarks about one that that is bucking that trend and is is dealing with things at the at the project level. There's clearly a need for harmonization and a need to ensure that the data being provided is relevant, useful, and assessed in the proper context. For example, data on a company's water usage may be much more relevant if it's operating in an arid region than if it's operating in the tropics. There's also a need for sectors such as mining to do a better job of communicating its accomplishments in ESG to stakeholders and the media. And despite what many of those critical of the performance of the mining industry assert, the mining sector was one of the first global industries to commit to sustainability reporting through the International Council on Mining and Metals. Uh, secondly, and more, and more germane to many people in the audience is the Mining Association of Canada's Towards Sustainable Mining Initiative is certainly a step in the right direction as it makes participation mandatory for all its members and as I alluded to earlier, it's also the only program in the world that conducts assessments at the facility level. So in a, in a very sort of quick and brief overview, those are, those are my comments from uh, my perspective uh, as a regulatory lawyer on ESG. Thank you, Alex. I, I did have a question. Obviously the pandemic has affected mineral exploration and development in various ways. So how do you think it will influence the way in which the social part of ESG is, is regarded in the future? Well, Robin, um, managing the legal risk that's inherent in ESG performance has, has really emerged as an imperative for, um, for business integrity in the midst of COVID-19. And, and I would also include in, in the influencing factor um, the Black Lives uh, Matter movement, the Me Too movement, other, other uh, issues that have really focused the world's attention on uh, social issues and the way in which uh, corporations uh, deal, with, deal with those. So the pandemic has definitely put a focus on, on these sorts of social issues. Um, the report I referred to earlier that the UN Environment Program issued in September of 2020 uh, noted that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is disproportionately affecting vulnerable communities, uh, including those around mining operations, and it's disrupting supply chains. Their supply chains. Um, the report said that there's an opportunity for mining companies to support the economies in these communities that have been disproportionately impacted through increasing local procurement. Uh, and helping affected communities enhance their resilience to meet future health and safety issues. Uh, the Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements have also raised issues relating to race and violence against women to greater prominence and have led to corporate actions being viewed through these lenses. So uh, in, from my perspective, this is how what's happened uh, over the last year has, has uh, factored in uh, to the area of ESG. Thank you, Alex. Denton's is a global law firm that provides services to clients worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode isn't designed to provide legal or other advice and you shouldn't take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Our speakers on this podcast or any other professionals in our group would be pleased to speak with you on today's topic or any other related topics. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes.